Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today and a little poetry. Renegade former Republican Mike Lofgren will talk about the severe cultural devolution of the right. And then two DSA public power advocates, Brandon Tizal and Gustavo Gordillo, will explain why, in the wake of the Texas disaster, getting control over the utility sector is more urgent than ever. And finally, we'll hear Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who died at the age of 101 a few days ago, read from a Coney Island of the Mind. Mike Lofgren spent 28 years working as a Republican congressional staffer, first for John Kasich and then for the House and Senate Budget Committees. He retired in 2011 and published a brutal essay on his former party in Truthout, which he discussed in this show right after it came out. He's written two books since then, The Party is Over and The Deep State, and several more articles cataloging the rot of his former party. He had a piece about two weeks ago on Common Dreams, The Right Devolves from J.S. Bach to Skinhead Rock, which, despite my love for Bach, is unfair to some forms of skinhead rock, has traced the transformation of the conservative movement from the harpsichord-playing days of William F. Buckley to crude extrusions by the likes of Mel Gibson and Ted Nugent. What happened? Here's Mike Lofgren with some answers. Back when I was in the right in the early 70s, we were all about high culture. We thought we were better all those liberals and leftists who were vulgar and common and pandering, and we were going to maintain the high values of Western culture. The right isn't like that anymore. Can you give us a history of what happened to all that uh, high-mindedness? Yes, that's correct. I recall in the 1960s, the avatar of the conservatives was William F. Buckley, who tried to maintain a very high-toned atmosphere. Of course, he played the harpsichord and was an expert on Johann Sebastian Bach, We've come a long way from Buckley to the QAnon shaman, but there's reasons embedded in the Republican and conservative culture that made it happen that way. We started off, again, with people like Buckley, Russell Kirk. The base of the Republican Party was seen as small-town accountants, undertakers, country club types, Shriners. But I think the whole cultural ferment of the Vietnam War and civil rights era started very slowly to change that equation. The left was seen as the crazies, but somehow the Buckley types weren't competing with that. Maybe the first uh, avatar was the hard hat riots where you had uh, New York construction workers beating up hippies and anti-war demonstrators. When Buckley ran for mayor of New York City in, I believe, 1965, he got a lot of uh, votes from outer borough whites. He thought he was just going to get, like, Manhattan wasps, uh, but he, he didn't. He was surprised, but he got, I think, like 13% of the vote, but it came from a different uh, social base than he was expecting or anyone was expecting at that point. Uh, that's correct, and... He sort of started this, the ball rolling on very rich, plutocratic Republican politicians appealing to sort of uneducated white working class types because he is with them somehow. You see this to a degree in even Poppy Bush, George H.W. Bush, with the nonsense about eating pork rinds and so forth. I would say Newt Gingrich was very skillful at playing this game. You had George W. Bush, who is supposedly the guy you could have a beer with, which struck me. Nobody seems to have noticed it. It struck me with a somewhat discordant note because he was a recovering alcoholic. Yet the press itself put this label on him in a somewhat admiring way compared to uh, Al Gore, who supposedly claimed to have invented the Internet. 
so it's been there all the time. It has simply come out and become the predominant force in the Republican Party since Trump first threw his hat into the ring in 2015. There's no looking back. I would say, to some degree, the Republican Party, as you've noticed, when you see how they changed on things like free trade, they used to be uh, internationalist, now it's America. They have no ideology that's variable other than the rich must be comforted at all costs and hierarchy must be maintained. Now, you're not going to get many people to vote for this sort of thing on a conscious level. So basically what I guess the Marxists call mystification comes into it whereby you dupe them that you're the party of the little guy. And in order to maintain that illusion, the thing gets more and more extreme all the time until you finally reach the point where if you look at a MAGA rally, it looks like a freak show or an assembly of outlaw motorcycle gangs. Well, now let's step back to the 80s for a bit. My first wife was a big ballet fan. And I remember uh, right after Reagan got elected, all these gay esthete New York ballet fans were excited that Reagan was bringing back high culture to the White House after the uh, vulgarity of the Carter years. You had Bill Bennett at that time talking about the importance of high culture and, you know, the canon and all that business. When did it start moving into the, uh, the direction of the, uh, the, the faux populism that they eventually embraced? Well, I think it was a kind of simultaneous thing. Maybe the whole high culture thing peaked in the 1980s. You had Bill Bennett lecturing everybody solemnly about culture and knowing the classics and so forth. Not that that rambling, gambling man actually practiced it necessarily. And then you had Alan Bloom's... uh, rather impenetrable book, The Closing of the American Mind, that said kids are being brainwashed by what we would now call political correctness, and they weren't learning the classical canon, and so forth. But at the same time, you started seeing the whole kind of Rambo, Red Dawn, Clint Eastwood stuff, And conservative politicians like Reagan himself started picking that up with these taglines like, go ahead, make my day. You also saw this kind of heavy adolescent sarcasm start that just suffuses conservative culture now. It's based on nothing but snark and insults and heavy sarcasm now. And you saw the dawn of that with people like P.J. O'Rourke after he left National Lampoon and became kind of a conservative figurehead. So it was already in embryo there. And you saw this kind of tough guy stuff build up and build up until it's what we see today. You uh, call uh, Joe the Plumber, the 2008 John the Baptist of the the new conservative man. (laughs) Remind people who Joe the Plumber was and what was his significance uh, to this evolution or devolution. His name, I think, was Joe Wurzelbacher, which I suppose is why they called him Joe the Plumber. He was some sort of plumber whose license lapsed and, and was actually well behind on his taxes, But he had this grudge, probably for those reasons, against the establishment. And he became kind of a mascot of the John McCain campaign. And that, of course, went hand in hand with his disastrous uh, choice of Sarah Palin as his vice presidential running mate. And Joe the Plumber became kind of a quasi-celebrity in his own right as the common man who is derided by the establishment. 
and he became the prototype of what we now see as the less educated, more white, more working class base of conservatism. The Democratic Party is winning the educated suburban vote, and it's becoming older, whiter, more male, and less educated with the Republicans. Probably it was the 1988 presidential election that the Republicans hit their high water mark in terms of the educated suburban voter. This leaves uh, the working class Democrats uh, homeless politically. Yeah, that has been a problem. And it shows that people do not vote their own interests. That what I said about mystification is true in so many cases with human beings because they don't seem to know their own interests. You know, I invoke Marx, but I think Marx's materialist conception of society in terms of what people truly value could be wrong because we've reached the point where symbols mean so much more to people than their actual concrete interests. And it's reached the point in the Republican Party that it's not so much what the Republicans can do for me, it's how they can hurt the people I perceive as my enemies. I'm speaking with former Republican congressional staffer Mike Lofgren. The question that always occurs to me when I watch these people, the spectacle of January 6th, but also uh, 120, 130 House Republicans voting to reject the results of the elections. How much do these people really believe their own nonsense? Or are they just pandering to an ignorant Yahoo base? Or have they been pandering so long they can't tell the difference anymore? How, how do you read what is going on in their minds? Try strapping a hyena down to a couch and psychoanalyze it. It's impossible. You can't tell when the mask that people wear becomes the man. I think most of them have overcome cognitive dissonance simply by believing it. Eventually, they believe it. Claire Booth Luce said about 60 years ago, eventually all politicians end up swallowing their own lies. Now, these people like Ted Cruz and uh, Josh Hawley, um, they all have um, fancy Ivy League pedigrees. How do they reconcile that elite education with this um, pandering to ignorance? Or is it just pure opportunism and cynicism on their part? It's a mixture of all kinds of things. I've noticed this for years, that if you look at, for instance, the cabinet of Donald Trump even, there were plenty of Ivy Leaguers in there. <laughs> Including Trump himself. <laughs> right. University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. Tom Cotton, didn't he attend Oxford? And I don't mean Oxford, Mississippi. So you have all these very strange contradictions. In the late 1990s, Umberto Eco wrote a long essay about fascism, and he said it's really hard to define the ideology. There's maybe a few things that are consistent, but mostly it's syncretism, that it just mashes together all kinds of disparate and even contradictory beliefs and attitudes, and it tends to change as the opportunities and the needs change, as we've seen the Republican Party do an about-face on free trade and many other issues. The authoritarianism is consistent throughout all that, however, which is why they follow the leader. Big Brother is right, and he has always been right, even when he pronounced the opposite. Trump, you can see how he would fulfill that role of the, the big leader for um, a certain demographic. Do they have anybody uh, in the wings who can take on that role? I can't imagine Tom Cotton exciting the masses to the degree that Trump did. I tend to agree that what really mobilizes these people is Trump or somebody very Trumpy, and that's who they're going to try to get in 2024. And there's a reason for this, or at least it hasn't been well researched. 
But why do Republican electoral results, such as in 2016 and 2020, outpace what the polls suggested? What the Republicans have accomplished in the last few years, this might have begun with the Tea Party in prototype form, very marginal types in our society, the bikers, the white ex-convicts, people who live off the grid, they don't show up in opinion polling. But Trump draws them to the polls in a way Nixon or Reagan or McCain never could, and certainly not Mitt Romney. So I'm not sure what Republican pollsters know about these people, but that could be a reason why most of the Republican power structure wants Trump, because he has mobilized segments of society that never used to vote. I can't imagine that Sonny Barger and the Hell's Angels circa 1968 voted for Nixon. <laughs> they probably didn't vote at all. But you get this feeling that that type of person would vote for Trump in a heartbeat. But he's been able to hold on to enough of the classic suburban voters who just want their deregulation and tax cuts to come close to winning. He hasn't lost all right. that crowd. Right. He's lost a few more of those from January 6th and the repercussions from that. But people have short memories in this country. I think Gore Vidal was correct when he called it the United States of amnesia. Well, but then they also want their tax cuts. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much what motivates the policy of the party now, right? It's just cutting taxes, deregulating, yeah. and letting uh, business do whatever the hell it wants to. Right, and that's what I said about syncretism, how you take contradictory things and you mash them up together. They want tax cuts, and they will oppose the stimulus based on the deficit and debt. Finally, everybody's committing a lot of punditry on what happens to the Republican Party now that Trump lost. He doesn't have his Twitter account anymore. He's you know, for now off the scene. He's under severe investigation by the Manhattan uh, DA. What's the future of the party? Um, is it his still, or uh, is it going to have to uh, wander in the wilderness and find a new direction? You know, my Nostradamus credentials are a little thin, but if you press me on that, I, I just don't see any mechanism whereby Trump goes away. He has a very tight hold on the loyalty of the Republican establishment because they know he has a tight hold on the base. So it may not be Trump, but it will be someone very much like Trump. <laughs> they don't grow on trees, though. You know, they could prop up Don Jr. I saw a sort of straw poll about who Republicans would favor in 2024. Trump was like 52 or 53 percent, about 40 points ahead of anyone. But among the also-rans doing pretty well was Donald Trump Jr. Oh, God save us for that fate. That was former Republican congressional staffer Mike Lofgren. You can find his article on the right's cultural decline on Common Dreams. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
was some of the Zhig from Bach's Partita No. 1, performed by Rosalind Turek in a performance that was recorded live in 1979 at William F. Buckley's house. I don't believe Ted Nugent ever made an appearance there. Next, the urgent need to socialize the electricity sector. The recent disaster in Texas was an illustration of how an unsupervised, market-driven utility system can lead to catastrophic failure. But Texas is merely an extreme example of what's true across much of the U.S., and with our electricity system poorly equipped to meet the challenges of climate change, the need to gain public control over the sector is screamingly urgent. With more on this topic, here are two activists in the Democratic Socialists of America's public power campaign, Brandon Tizal and Gustavo Gordillo. They're active both in New York City and nationally. Gustavo Gordillo and Brandon Tizal. Texas, I guess that's on everyone's mind now, um, the unspeakable disasters uh, of Texas. Um, the right wing is trying to blame it on windmills and, and solar power. Um, this is clearly nonsense. But uh, how do you read what's going on and what's been going on in Texas? Um, I think that this is the, the result of a long, many decades long campaign to deregulate the energy system, to privatize control over every aspect of it. Enron in the 90s in many states pushed to split up and balkanize the energy system between generators and transmission and distribution. In the past, utilities controlled everything and they were regulated by states. And now there are many different corporations running different parts of the energy system for profit. And there's not a lot of uh, incentive, especially in a state like Texas, um, to coordinate and um, ensure that social needs are placed above profit. And, you know, in in the energy system, we see that profit uh, is prioritized above definitely climate justice and safety for people, especially seeing the attacks that um, initially uh, the right wing was pushing um, that Wind, wind energy was to blame. Um, it's really um, complete gaslighting. Um, it's it's mostly gas generation um, that was like the immediate cause um, because uh, the energy companies in Texas had failed to winterize equipment, so power plant instruments and pipelines froze because uh, you know they hadn't prepared for the changing climate and um, the climate crisis that. That we're living through. When you say they broke up, you know, it used to be that in the regulated old days, uh, everything was like one operator from the point of generation of electricity to your outlet at, in your house. Um, what is the logic of breaking all that up into separate functions? It's just different ways to make more money on it? Yeah, I think so. Under a, a vertically inter- integrated monopoly, um, each state generally had like a um, a public utility commission, something like that, that would monitor every, you know, set like restrictions on what the company could do. Um, I'm I'm definitely not saying that this is an ideal system because the regulators themselves are often, you know, under capture um, by the utilities. But now, um, for example, in New York State, where where I am, we have ESCOs, energy service companies that are like a middleman. Um, these companies were created during regulation, um, and they're all they do is really just market energy. Usually, they prey on like non-English speaking households, the elderly. They're the people who go door to door and try to sell you these um, alternative utility plans. To, to and you know they'll say they'll, it'll be cheaper, and usually it will be for like three months, and then they raise prices after. Well, then they sell, sell this bogus wind power thing. I, I fell for that. I'm embarrassed to admit. Yeah, a lot of people actually in uh, you know who are climate conscious and like are in DSA uh, will will fall for that. They themselves often do not own the the generation; they're just um, marketing it. When you enroll in like Green Mountain Energy, for example, they're not really increasing the amount of um, renewable generation that exists. Uh, Brandon, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, just speaking to the to the situation in general, Gustavo touched on the core of the problem here, which is that you know they fail to weatherize their grid. But I also want to bring it beyond that too, right? Um, so you have failure to re- to weatherize the grid, which is just part of what the corporation is going to do. They're not going to reinvest the money that they're getting. They're going to take it out in profits. But beyond that, there's been a half a century push to detract from what government and what these companies are even supposed to be doing, right? So in the face of an emergency, you have 
a complete lack of infrastructure to be able to deal with that emergency. Um, just logistically, even if they if they really wanted to deal with it as best as possible, they don't have the means to actually do it. But then beyond that, you have you you have government officials in place who clearly aren't even interested in the idea of really tackling this emergency, you know, in the here and now. You know, you hear everyone say, well, you know, what are we supposed to do? You have people, you know, running off to Cancun because they don't feel like there's anything that that, that they can or should be doing in that moment. And it's all related, right? It's, it's all it's it's all part of the same Reaganistic push to deregulate and to detract from what it is that our infrastructure is supposed to be meant to do. What kind of stuff are you working on? What uh, you're t- both involved with an attempt to uh, create a public power system? What would that look like? Is it you know locally based, nationally based, state based? What kinds of uh, ideas do you have? Brandon and I are both involved in a campaign in New York State to called Public Power New York to create a democratically controlled publicly owned energy system uh, for New York State. This is a statewide campaign. We decided to to focus at the state level because states have um, unusually large roles um, in the governance of the energy system. In the U.S., we we don't really have a, a very strong federal role, I guess, in the energy system. The, the federal government doesn't have that as, as much power, like compared to like the UK, they, they do have like a centralized energy system where the, the federal government can oversee everything and centralize everything. In the US, we don't really have that as, as Texas shows, um, Texas. But of course, Texas was, was unusually sealed off from the rest of the country because a lot of the rest of it is interconnected. Even Texas having the ability, right, to just unilaterally say, we're not going to be a part of this. Um, is ridiculous in its own right. You know? <laughs> yes. But that's the Texas way, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, our campaign, we're mainly focusing on two bills, uh, the state legislature right now that we're going to introduce um, in a couple of weeks. Um, one is called the New York Utility Democracy Act, and that would bring into public ownership all of the investor-owned utilities in the state and create local um, boards that would oversee uh, the governance of um, the distribution grid in 10 different areas in the state. They'd be uh, democratically elected. Right now, uh, of course, there's no really democratic governance over over the investor and utilities. Um, It's only the shareholders who have any say over how they're run. And uh, our utility in New York City, for example, paid a uh, billion dollars um, in dividends to shareholders last year. So if we had a publicly owned system, uh, all of that profit could be democratically controlled and, and reinvested into the grid to decarbonize it and to, to make it more resilient. And then the other bill that we have is uh, the New York Build Public Renewables Act. So New York has uh, the largest state-owned utility in the country already. It's called the New York Power Authority, and it was created by FDR when he was the governor of New York. So it's a precursor to the New Deal, this uh, government entity. So the New York Power Authority owns uh, about a quarter of the generation in the state, mostly hydro uh, at the Niagara Falls Dam and um, the Lawrence River Dam upstate. But they are not able to build any new utility scale generation. So we want uh, the New York Power Authority to be, its powers to be expanded so that it can build renewable generation um, so that it can own uh, offshore wind or, um, you know, land-based wind and uh, utility scale solar. How would we take over Con Ed uh, and such? I mean, I, I can't imagine we'd just expropriate it without compensation. So would we buy out the stockholders? Is that the idea? Exactly. There are two ways to do it. One way, as you mentioned, is to buy out the shareholders, like make an offer and Con Ed can accept it. The other is to, um, it's called condemnation and it's a form of eminent domain. And there would be um, a court proceeding to determine a fair value. Obviously, what the public thinks is a fair value is going to be different from what the company thinks is a fair value. So it would be a political political struggle to some extent. Uh, Brandon, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, I mean, no, I think that, that really gets into how we would try to take over Con Ed. Obviously, with the goal being to scale a public system that would be able to handle 
all the energy that we need and be able to do it in a way that's much more clean and much more green than what Con Ed will be doing on their own uh, if left to their own devices. That's the voice of Brandon Tizal. I'm speaking with him and Gustavo Gordillo, who are active with DSA's public power campaign. Now, so far we've been talking mostly about New York. What other uh, schemes around the country are there that you know of? One idea that um, we plan to campaign on eventually, and I think that the Texas crisis will probably um, accelerate it more, is the idea that we need a a federally owned uh, interconnected transmission grid, like a super grid, to connect both the eastern half and the western half of the, the transmission grid and Texas's grid all together. One of the interesting things about this idea is that Obama and Biden, during the last um, 2008 financial crisis, were actually interested in creating a nationally owned federal uh, grid. We need to modernize the grid um, in order for the amount of renewables that we need to be able to actually be sustained by the transmission grid. And also, we need to be able to quickly... um, transport energy from parts of the, um, the country that have a lot of wind capacity to parts of the country that don't have um, wind capacity or solar. But anyway, Obama and Biden, after 2008, thought that this was an interesting idea as a form of economic recovery. And it was uh, Larry Summers, Obama's um, economic advisor, who killed the idea um, in the, the last economic stimulus in t- 2009 saying that actually this is not like the proper role of the government, that transmission should be handled by private corporations. And, you know, that was that, basically. (laughs) That guy has a lot to answer for. (laughs) One of the things that the Texas crisis has shown us is that um, renewables aside, sustainability aside, our our current infrastructure just can't withstand the kinds of events that we're going to see with increasing frequency uh, as the climate gets worse. I mean, it's just obviously too feeble to hold up uh, under these kinds of challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And what they're going to try to do, and what you, what you already see them doing in Texas with blaming wind and, and the Green New Deal in general, is they're going to try to use that to you know, spur investment in the same sort of fossil fuel infrastructure that we've been doing for all these years, which obviously just exacerbates the crisis itself. So now is the time. It's absolutely crucial right now that we interrupt that. We can't allow for the narrative to shift towards reinvestment into another few decades uh, of fossil fuel uh, power generation in, in this country because we're not going to have much time after that if we allow that to happen. What do you see as the core um, sustainable sources of power? Um, wind, solar, uh, anything else? Geothermal um, energy, too, uh, hasn't been deployed at the same scale yet, but in the Northeast, um, where we rely on gas for heating, I think that uh, you know geothermal Ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps will be really important to develop at scale. Do we have the technology to do this now, or is it going to require some kind of breakthrough? No, it's all ready to go, essentially. It's certainly ready to develop like at a, and build at like a, a way larger scale than we've done. You know, um, In New York, only 5% of our grid is uh, wind and solar. And uh, we're not such an unusual state in that regard. There are no major technological challenges to get like 80% of the grid to be 100% renewable energy. There are challenges to get between 80% to 100% renewable energy, but we're still a long way off from that. And I think that in the meantime, we can, we can figure that out. Some of that 20%, what uh, Sarah Palin characterized in her inimitable way that, you know, when the sun don't shine, the wind don't blow. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. I mean, that is one of the problems. You know, there are areas where there will be no sun and no wind for certain periods of, of the year. And that's why we need um, a federal transmission grid. Um, so that, you know, when there's no wind and sun, like in parts of New York, wind can be um, imported from the Midwest or whatever. So electricity is really transmissible over quite long distances. Yeah, it is. It travels at the speed of light. So you just need the, the infrastructure to be able to, to handle it. What about the Green New Deal? What are the, um, the power components uh, of the Green New Deal? The one area that we need to contest more within the Green New Deal is the ownership and who, who gets to control um, this, this energy 
We know that Biden has been moved, at least on paper, um, to embrace large-scale um, development of renewable energy as a form of economic stimulus and economic recovery. But his advisors are going to be pushing neoliberal models of um, green capitalism. I know that like certain advisors were pushing um, Texas as a potential model uh, to emulate before all of this happened, um, because Texas has used the market to develop wind energy. But um, I think that we need to be pushing for more democratic control and uh, public ownership over the wind and solar that we do generate. The major companies that are going to be developing offshore wind, like Orsted and Equinor, are actually you know, state-owned companies um, in Scandinavia. Equinor uh, is um, you know, Norway's um, energy company, and um, Orsted is, is Denmark's. And there's really no reason why um, the United States shouldn't be allowing for democratic control of, of energy. <laughs> We're Americans. We don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what about the role of conservation? If we insulate our buildings better, for example, couldn't we um, save a lot of electricity and, and just need to use less of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely a core component of the Green New Deal, right? There's a lot that's getting put into weatherizing. There's a lot that's being put into more efficient uh, energy use, like the Green New Deal for public housing has a whole component for bringing new appliances into public housing. Not well, that's going to contribute to that aspect of it. But, you know, it's not enough. We have to make it so that the actual energy production is green on top of cutting down our energy usage. Energy efficiency and reducing um, the overall consumption of energy is pretty a pretty important um, international component uh, of climate justice, um, you know, so that in order to produce solar panels um, and battery storage. We need to be mining um, lithium in the global south for the most part. And um, that creates its own forms of exploitation. Um, and the best thing that we can do uh, in a lot of ways um, with that is to, to reduce our overall consumption and um, the energy intensity of uh, our ways of life. And what do we know? Uh, we talked about this a little, but maybe a little more detail to close on. Um, what do we know about Biden's climate schemes, particularly this this portion of it? We've heard some nice words, but uh, what do we know um, he's actually planning to do? Or is this too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell at this point. For Biden, um, he is very focused on clean energy um, and I'd like to see more on transportation coming from this administration about developing um, mass transit systems more and long-term plan to shift away from dependence on, on individual um, cars. And I think that that is somewhere we'll, we'll, we'll have to push a lot um, because I think that Biden really sees um, the creation of electric cars as like um, a a key component. Of, yeah, it seems like this whole push for electric cars seems like they're trying to keep the automobile-centered life uh, alive for another couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, Tesla is being allowed to create all these um, charging stations and only Teslas can use them. It's, uh, and, you know, electric uh, ratepayers are the ones who are subsidizing all of this. So, really working class people are subsidizing um, infrastructure that they'll never be able to use for cars that they can't afford. Um, and so it's a huge, huge working class justice issue. The push for public transportation is hugely important, but I have the utmost faith in Secretary Buttigieg to be championing this. <laughs> <laughs> Basis and extensive experience running transit systems in South Bend. Absolutely. Those are Brandon Tizzle and Gustavo Gordillo of DSA's Public Power Campaign. And now an unusual poetry segment. The noted poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti died in San Francisco on February 22nd at the age of 101, just a month shy of 102. Not only was he a distinguished poet, he was also a major cultural figure in the Bay Area, with much of that fame centering around City Lights, the San Francisco bookstore he co-founded in 1953. 
Here's Ferlinghetti reading some poems that would be collected later in a Coney Island of the Mind. This is from a 1956 broadcast on Berkeley's KPFA, the station where Behind the News originate. Number three. Sailing through the straits of Deimos, we saw symbolic birds shrieking over us while eager eagles hovered and elephants in bathtubs floated past us out to sea, strumming bent mandolins and bailing for old glory with their ears, while patriotic maidens wearing paper poppies and eating bonbons ran along the shores wailing after us, and while we lashed ourselves to masts and stopped our ears with chewing gum, dying donkeys on high hills sang low songs and gay cows flew away, chanting Athenian anthems as their pods turned to tulips. And heliocopters from Helios flew over us, dropping free railway tickets from Los Angeles to heaven and promising free elections. So that we set up mast and sail on that swart ship once more and so set forth once more Forth upon the gobbly sea, loaded with liberated vestal virgins and discus throwers, reading Walden. But shortly after reaching the strange suburban shores of that great American demi-democracy, looked at each other with a mild surprise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Number four. In Goya's greatest scenes, we seem to see the people of the world exactly at the moment when they first attain the title of suffering humanity. They writhe upon the page in a veritable rage of adversity, heaped up, groaning with babies and bayonets under cement skies in an abstract landscape of blasted trees, bent statues, bats' wings and beaks, slippery gibbets, cadavers, and carnivorous cocks, and all the other final hollering monsters of the imagination of disaster. They are so bloody real, it is as if they really still existed. And they do. Only the landscape is changed. They still are ranged along the roads, plagued by legionnaires, false windmills, and demented roosters. They are the same people, only further from home. On freeways, fifty lanes wide, on a concrete continent, spaced with bland billboards, illustrating imbecile illusions of happiness. The scene shows fewer tumbrils, but more maimed citizens in painted cars, and they have strange license plates and engines that devour America. Number eight. Not like Dante, discovering a commedia, upon the slopes of heaven. I would paint a different kind of paradiso in which the people would be naked as they always are in scenes like that because it is supposed to be a painting of their souls. But there would be no anxious angels telling them how heaven is the perfect picture of a monarchy, and there would be no fires burning in the hellish holes below in which I might have stepped, nor any altars in the sky except fountains of the imagination. Number nine. Kafka's castle stands above the world like a last bastille of the mystery of existence. Its blind approaches baffle us. Steep paths plunge nowhere from it. Roads radiate into air. 
like the labyrinth wires of a telephone central through which all calls are infinitely untraceable. Up there it is heavenly weather. Souls dance undressed together and like loiterers on the fringes of a fair we ogle the unobtainable imagined mystery. Yet away around on the far side, like the stage door of a circus tent, is a wide, wide vent in the battlements where even elephants waltz through. Number 10. They were putting up the statue of St. Francis in front of the church of St. Francis in the city of San Francisco in a little side street just off the avenue where no birds sang, and the sun was coming up on time in its usual fashion and just beginning to shine on the statue of St. Francis where no birds sang, and a lot of old Italians were standing all around in the little side street just off the avenue watching the wily workers who were hoisting up the statue with a chain and a crane and other implements, and a lot of young reporters in button-down clothes were taking down the words of one young priest who was propping up the statue with all his arguments, and all the while, while no bird sang any St. Francis Passion, and while the lookers kept looking up at St. Francis with his arms outstretched to the birds which weren't there, a very tall and very purely naked young virgin with very long and very straight straw hair and wearing only a very small bird's nest in a very existential place kept passing through the crowd all the while and up and down the steps in front of St. Francis, her eyes downcast all the while, and singing to herself. Number 12. Sometime during eternity, some guys show up, and one of them who shows up real late is a kind of carpenter from some square-type place like Galilee. And he starts wailing and claiming he is hep to who made heaven and earth and that the cat who really laid it on us is his dad. And moreover, he adds, it's all writ down on some scroll-type parchments which some henchmen leave lying around the Dead Sea somewheres a long time ago and which you won't even find for a couple of thousand years or so, or at least for 1947 of them, to be exact. And even then, nobody really, really believes them, or me, for that matter. You're hot, they tell him, and they cool him. They stretch him on the tree to cool. And everybody after that is always making models of this tree with him hung up and always crooning his name and calling him to come down and sit in on their combo as if he is the king cat who's got to blow. Only... He don't come down from his tree. Him just hang there on his tree, looking real petered out and real cool. And also, according to a roundup of late world news from the usual unreliable sources, real dead. 19. I have not lain with beauty all my life, telling over to myself its most rife charms. I have not lain with beauty all my life and lied with it as well, telling over to myself how beauty never dies but lies apart among the aborigines of art 
and far above the battlefields of love. It is above all that. Oh, yes, it sits upon the choicest of church seats up there where art directors choose the things for immortality. And they have lain with beauty all their lives, and they have fed on honeydew and drunk the wines of paradise, so that they know exactly how a thing of beauty is a joy forever and forever, and how it never, never quite can fade into a money-losing nothingness. Oh, no, I have not lain on beauty rests like this, afraid to rise at night for fear that I might somehow miss some movement beauty might have made. Yet I have slept with beauty in my own weird way, and I have made a hungry scene or two with beauty in my bed, and so spilled out another poem or two, and so spilled out another poem or two upon the Bosch-like world. Number 21. Peacocks walked under the night trees in the lost moonlight when I went out looking for love that night. A ring dove cooed in a cove, a clush told twice, once for the birth and once for the death of love that night. That was Lawrence Ferlinghetti reading some poems that would later be collected in A Coney Island of the Mind. That was a 1956 broadcast in Berkeley's KPFA, the station where Behind the News originates. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the Acid Flex by Lauren Flax. Till next week, bye. <laughs>